disciples in the boat, we thank you for this beautiful, powerful demonstration of Jesus' sovereignty, his authority and power over the wind and the waves. We thank you, Father, for what this passage shows us about Jesus' care for his disciples, that he cares for us enough to ordain and command the storms of life that we might learn to trust him. Teach us this lesson today and impress it upon our hearts, even as I ask for your grace for the one who preaches as well as your mercies for those who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4 as we read verses 35 through 41, a very familiar story in Jesus' life. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, you do not care that we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, our text represents a transition in the gospel of Mark from parables to miracles. And this first miracle that we see in this new section shows Jesus commanding the storm, showing his power and authority over the wind and the waves, over nature. But it also shows us something else, Jesus' care for his disciples. In the midst of the storm, he cared enough to teach them to trust him. During our trip to the Holy Land, as I have mentioned several times, Ray and I enjoyed a cruise on the Sea of Galilee. And our tour guide thought that it was a really great idea for everyone on the boat to to join in singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. And so we sang, he's got the wind and the waves in his hands. He's got that little baby in his hands. He's got you and me, sister in his hands. He's got everybody in his hands, except there was one one stanza added, he's got the Sea of Galilee in his hands. And as corny as I thought that little chorus was then, and by the way, now as I'm sharing it to you, yet it does depict the very lesson that we find here in this account of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. He not only had the Sea of Galilee in his hands, he had the storm in his hands, and he had the disciples in his hands as well. And that's the 
the lesson for us today. He has all in his hands for his sovereign purposes. We find Jesus and the disciples setting sail on the Sea of Galilee from the northwestern part of the sea at night. And they were going to the other side. And in the midst of this, this voyage, this fearful voyage, they encountered a fearful reality, a storm at night on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples, Jesus responded quite differently than the disciples. We'll get to that later. But the disciples responded fearfully. And in the midst of Jesus dealing both with the disciples' lack of faith and the storm, we see a fearful recognition comes upon the disciples as they realize who was in the boat with them. So have you ever encountered one of life's fearful realities? Maybe, for example, an unexpected yet major expense that you simply do not have the money to cover. Maybe a serious medical diagnosis, that word that none of us wants to hear, cancer. Maybe someone who is close to you has died. Perhaps there is a situation or a person that has greatly disappointed you and you really don't know what to do. Life's, life's realities may seem very much like a voyage on a sea and encountering a ferocious storm. We find ourselves overwhelmed by the storm, which means that we're overwhelmed often by fear. And we may even ask, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, don't you care? First, the disciples found themselves in a real life-threatening situation on the Sea of Galilee, a fearful reality. After teaching about the kingdom in parables, as we just concluded, and then explaining those parables in private to his disciples, you'll find this in verses 1 through 34 of chapter 4. When evening had come, our text says in verse 35, Jesus said, let's go across to the other side, that is the other side being the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the eastern shore of the Gerizines in the area of Gadara. In fact, we'll find next week in the beginning of chapter 5 that that's where another miracle is going to take place by Jesus on the other side, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples, they, they, they left the crowd. And it's interesting what the text says. In fact, one of our members mentioned this to me this morning who had read this passage. And, and we both had the same thought of just this interesting that it says that he was taken on board the boat in verse 36 just as he was. <laughs> what, what could that mean? I think one thing it means is that the disciples made no preparations for this voice. This was a kind of a spur of the moment thing, at least in their minds. But but I want us to see something I think that's interesting here, even though there maybe wasn't some well-defined plan while they were going across to the other side, yet there's a sovereign plan of God, a sovereign plan of Jesus in all of this that would take place on the Sea of Galilee. 
We are not told the names of the crew, although I think it's reasonable to assume that those first disciples that Jesus called in chapter 1, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were were likely on board the very boat that Jesus was in, or one of the boats, because a, a flotilla was taking this voyage across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus' boat and other boats. And my point in even asking this question, who was on board, is that it's very reasonable that those on board, especially those who were the crew of these boats, had experience sailing on the Sea of Galilee and likely knew about the weather and the storms. These were not just inexperienced people that were taking part in this voyage. And so in verse 37, this great flotilla sets sets out and encounters what our text says is a great windstorm on the sea. It is interesting that on the Sea of Galilee, it is not uncommon at all for sudden and violent storms to just pop up. The Sea of Galilee is a freshwater body. It's about 13 miles long, about 8 miles wide. It's hardly a sea, but that's what it's called. Lake Gennesaret's another name. It is surrounded by mountainous terrain. In fact, the cold air on Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon is about 9,200 feet above sea level. That cold air comes down through these mountain passes and then it encounters the warmer air just above the Sea of Galilee, which is 696 feet below sea level and causes very, very unstable air masses over the lake, which lends to this reputation of high winds and large waves. And the, and the veracity of these storms on the Sea of Galilee, this relatively small body of water compared to the Mediterranean or the Atlantic or Pacific Oceans, yet these storms can be so severe that the typical fishing boat used in the first century could easily be swamped and sunk. Since the winds normally blew stronger during the daylight hours, most of the fishing, and we see this throughout the New Testament, most of the fishing took place at night. Why? To avoid, to avoid the likelihood of encountering a severe storm. And so when Jesus decided to set sail, when our text says, when evening came, it made all the sense in the world to to those who would be on those boats. Yes, of course, that's what we do. That's what we normally do. We want to avoid storms, so we set sail at night. We go about our job fishing at night. But Jesus had other plans. Those on board were faced with a real-life perfect storm that bore down on them suddenly and unexpectedly and shook to the core even the most experienced fishermen and sailors on board. The 72-foot long liner by the name of Andrea Gale left the harbor of Gloucester, Massachusetts in late September of 1991. The captain on board was Billy Tyne. He had a crew of five experienced sailors and uh, fishermen, and they were setting sail to, for the North Atlantic Grand Banks. And here was their plan. They were going to catch 40,000 
pounds of swordfish. That was their plan. However, their plan did not include what suddenly came In late October of 1991, a storm bore down on the eastern seaboard of our country. The Andrea Gale did not plan to encounter this storm. It was a classic nor'easter for those who are from the northeast. You know that term very well. 65 knot winds and 39 foot waves were recorded. Major storm. And about the time the Andrea get this storm encountered, or the Andrea Gale encountered this storm, it had almost reached its peak velocity, which was October 30th. The Andrea Gale was sunk. They estimate around October 28th, just as the storm was intensifying. The crew of the Andrea Gale left port as they had done many, many times over the years, to go about their plan, their life's work, to go out and catch those swordfish and bring it back, bring it back with the rest of the fishing fleet, fleet. But what the weather service labeled the perfect storm was a whole different plan. And the crew went down with the ship. Now here's my point. We have our plan as we go about life. And I would say, in fact, if I, if I, if I took a, a poll, which I'm not going to do, but if I did, I, I, I would expect that 100% of us would say that our plan does not include a storm. <laughs> Who plans for a storm? No, but, but I... I would venture to say that most of us in our plan, we would plan to avoid storms. That makes sense. The disciples planned to avoid storms. They went out at night on the Sea of Galilee. We plan to avoid storms. The angry gale set out from Gloucester Harbor not planning to encounter the perfect storm. But God often has other plans, doesn't he? And maybe today you're here and you're in a storm. We live in a fearful reality of life's storms, God's other plan. We may be heading into one of these storms. We may be in one of these storms. And we may be emerging from one of these storms, but what we can say with great confidence is that there is always a storm in front of us, over us, or behind us. The critical matter for us is how do we respond when we find ourselves facing one of these storms. When I was a young boy, 
our family went deep sea fishing off the North Carolina coast, and yes, mom was with us, so don't listen because you'll probably get sick. It was a sunny day, but the seas were very, very rough. In fact, the seas were so rough that the captain of this, this deep sea fishing charter almost decided not to take us out. But we went out from, I think, Wilmington, and the minute that we lost sight of land, the seas started just rolling up and down, and it was as a, as a younger boy, it, it was quite monumental for me. I mean, it was really rough seas. It was so rough. I, I really, I won't mention those who got sick, but I will not, I cannot even do what I went out on that boat to do, and that was to fish. Most of the time I spent with my rod under my arm so that it wouldn't just fall off in, into the ocean it was rented and and my hands were both let me just ask you do, do you know what a, a white knuckle grip looks like H have you ever experienced one yourself well my fingerprints are probably still in that railing if that boat is even still in on the ocean white knuckle event it was so fearful I really did fear for my life. I believe the disciples had such a white knuckle moment. These, many of them perhaps experienced sailors and fishermen who had been in storms before. But our text says this was a great storm, a great windstorm. And their response we find in verse 38 is in the form of a question. But, but even before we get to how the disciples responded, We'll get there, but not yet. I want us to look at how Jesus responded. And <clears throat> how did Jesus respond? Look at verse 38. We read, he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. I mean, th this detail is only given in Mark's account, and it lends to the support that, Mark, that uh, Peter was probably on the boat with Jesus, able to recount this eyewitness detail remember Mark's gospel is based largely on Peter and his sermons and Peter's eyewitness account and so likely Mark was uh, Peter was there observing the fact that if there's this fearful response to the storm but Jesus is sleeping well what what about the size of this boat how big was it Archaeologists have actually two, two men, two fishermen, found a boat on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee in 1986. And archaeologists have called this boat the Jesus boat. It is a classic boat that would have been on the Sea of Galilee in the first century. In fact, carbon dating anchors, pardon the pun, anchors this boat in the first century and so it very well could have been the size and the construction of the, of the boat that that Jesus was on in this this story and it was about 27 feet long so if you look from the far corner of this upper part of the stage here all the way to that side that's 27 feet 
That's how long this boat was. The boat was seven and a half feet wide and about four and a half feet deep. It had one mask in the middle to use for sailing, obviously, but it also had four positions where rows could be used. And it is estimated that if the boat was used to ferry people across the Sea of Galilee, that a crew of five and ten passengers could fit in one of these boats. And if it was used for fishing, then a five-member crew and 600 uh, pounds to a ton of fish could be carried on these boats. That gives you an idea. It's a fairly significant, but not that big. And the point that I wanted to bring out by even talking about this, the likely size of this boat is that Jesus is in the stern, the back of the boat, sleeping Sat like a like a baby, I mean, you would think that the sound of the storm, the waves crashing up against the side of the boat, the water coming over the boat and sloshing about all over, not to mention the fact that with, with 15 or 14 other people on board, there was probably a group of people fairly near Jesus. You would think Jesus would have heard them cry out in fear about this storm but he slept, sound asleep. We know he was sound asleep because in verse 38 it says, and they woke him. They had, to w- they had to wake him up. Why was he asleep? I'll give you one reason he was asleep. He was probably exhausted. It's like people say, why did Jesus ask for something to drink on the cross? He was thirsty. I think there was another reason that he was asleep. While being exhausted would point to his humanity, his true human nature, yet he was not fearful. He was able to rest in the midst of a storm because as the Son of God, he trusted the will of his heavenly Father. So we see a beautiful picture of faith here. After awakening Jesus, they they ask a question, more of a statement. Jesus, do you not care? We are perishing, verse 38. Their, Their fear of perishing had just overwhelmed their ability to trust Jesus. Jesus who was with them in the boat, in the storm. Let me ask you a question. Can you identify with the disciples here? Have you found it difficult to trust Jesus in a storm of life? in which you find yourself, and, and you may be asking, Jesus, don't you care? I would find it hard to believe that most of us haven't, at least at some level, experienced something like that, because the storms of life can be great. We can identify with these disciples, but Jesus responded to their question, how? With a question. Actually, two questions. It was not ultimately the veracity of the storm or even the prospect of drowning that had caused so much fear in the the life of these disciples. Their, Their fear stemmed from unbelief. 
And I believe that we see this in question verse, the first question, verse 40, where Jesus asked me rhetorically, they were, <laughs> they were demonstrating fear, uh, why are you so afraid? And then he exposed really the true reason they were afraid, the, let's just say the heart of their fear, the root of their fear. In verse 40, he said, have you still no faith? They had not learned to trust Jesus. Think about that. Jesus said, have you still no faith? What had the disciples observed Jesus do? All right, this is the fourth chapter of Mark, so it hasn't been like years and years and years, but they've already encountered quite a bit with Jesus. Uh, Jesus had, had taught them and was kind enough to explain <laughs> his lesson uh, to them. They had heard many parables. Jesus had performed miracles of, of all sorts, demonstrating his love and his mercy and his compassion, his faithfulness, his power and his truth. Jesus identified himself as God when he forgave, forgave that, that crippled man. Remember that? And he was accused of blasphemy, and yet Jesus brought this man to full health. Still, you have no faith after all that you have seen me do, after all you've been a part of with me. Now listen, before we think too harshly of these disciples, we, 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 we might uh, <laughs> think about our own responses in the storms of life. Uh, we, we may be in such a storm that totally ignore the many times Jesus has proven faithful in the past. It is almost as, as if Jesus has never done anything that would, that would convince us that he is trustworthy. Fear can overwhelm us to, to that level where we simply can't recall who Jesus is even, not to mention how faithful he has been in the past. Have you ever thought or have you ever said something to the the extent of Jesus, don't you care? By failing to trust Jesus in one of these life storms, we are acting, we are behaving, we are demonstrating that really Jesus must not care. Care for us and care for us in this storm. The disciples' fearful response to this life-threatening storm was shown by Jesus to be a lack of faith in him, though he was right there with them in the boat in the storm. And when we lack faith in Jesus, we need to understand we lack faith in Jesus who is with us in the boat in the storm. You know, man can do many things. Surgeon can repair broken bodies, thankfully. Technicians can fix cars, thankfully. Counselors can help us solve some of our 
problems, thankfully. Elders can shepherd congregations, thankfully. And weathermen can predict weather and track storms, thankfully. And people can complain about the weather. And we can take cover from storms. Man can do many things, but one thing man can't do, as one commentator said, it takes deity to change the weather. And we see deity changing the weather on the Sea of Galilee that evening. Third and finally, the disciples came to a fearful realization about who was with them in the boat. Before Jesus pointed out the disciples like a flood in verse 40, he actually commanded nature. He changed the weather in verse 39. He commanded that there be peace. And the wind and the waves immediately ceased, and there was calm and still across the Sea of Galilee. And their response to Jesus' power and authority over the wind and the waves and the storm is shown in verse 41. They were filled with great fear. I, I suggest that we understand filled with great fear as expressing the, the, the range of ways that we fear from being terrified to being in awe and reverencing because they came to recognize who was with them in the boat. Their, their sense of fear is really indicated when they ask this question. This section's full of questions, isn't it? And they ask then, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him. They, they were not confused about Jesus' identity. I think rather they were just simply shaken to the core at the demonstration of Jesus, the God-man, and his power and authority over the waves. The Lord's miracle impressed them. The one who was asleep in the back of the boat is the one who with one commanded the storm to cease. In Psalm 33 that Carl read earlier, it's a beautiful psalm by the way, and I think we see echoes of this story all throughout that psalm. And one of those echoes would be in verses 7 and 8 as we see that the, the psalm is telling us about God creating, God having power over the, 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 the waters. And then as we reflect upon how powerful God is not only creating but commanding nature, strike us with fear, cause us to be in awe of, of him. Like a river glorious that we sang just, just before the sermon started, notice that, that hymn as well coming to, to realize Jesus' power and authority over the waters should cause us to fear. The one who created the waves and the winds and commands the storms to cease and bring peace to the sea was the one who was with them in the boat in the storm. We cannot miss that. And it's the same one who is with us in the boat in the storm that we're going through. as we face the fearful realities of life. 
He is the one in whom we must trust, even when we are overcome with fear. While Jesus does chide the disciples, he does rebuke them for not trusting him, notice what he doesn't do. He does not crush them. He does not disown them. He is the ever-merciful and gracious sovereign Lord over all. He commands the wind and the waves, and he sovereignly uses those circumstances, the storms, as, as a tool in his hand to challenge, to put stress on, to test the faith of his disciples. Not that they would flunk the test, but that God might use that to show faith as genuine. The storm was his tool to sanctify his disciples. Like, likewise, the, the storms that we face, life's storms that we face, are tools in the hand of God for our sanctification, even while we also remain in the hands of God. Obviously. But what's the import? Think of a, think of a whittler. I'm right-handed. He's got his carving knife in one hand, and he has that piece of wood in the other hand. Both are in his hands, and he's whittling away, creating his work of art, his figure. And I want us to see that's what God is doing. He brings the storm as his whittling knife. We're in his hands too, and he's using that storm to make us into whom he has willed for us to be. His disciples who trust him and trust him more. This lesson is taught in James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that ye may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's work in the storm includes convicting us of unbelief, just like he did with the disciples. He chided them. He rebuked them. He called them. He said, you still have no faith? And he does that for you and me. His work also involves bringing us to see again who he is, the, the sovereign Lord who commands the storm. Not only creating the wind and the waves, but ordering them. Just one word. And he is the one who truly does, as corny as it may sound, have the Sea of Galilee in his hands. He has the storm in his hands. He has you and me, brothers and sisters, in his hand. He is working to bring about his plan with all in his hands. And his plan is to show us to be faithful, that our faith would be genuine, that we would grow in trusting him. 
Here's the issue. If we are going to trust him more, do you know what that means? More storms. Are you ready? We will sing in just a few moments, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." The fourth stanza has this line, I'm so glad I learned to trust thee. Well, well, where do you learn to trust Jesus? What this text tells us is that we learn to trust Jesus in the storms that he brings. It is our Lord's classroom. It is our Lord's tool to deal with our unbelief and to teach us to trust him. And as we learn to trust him, we learn the reality that we find in the refrain of "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus," which is this: "Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, or and or Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh for grace to trust him more. Oh for grace to trust him more. Oh for grace in storms to trust him more." Because that's the reality what we find in this text. That grace of trust him more is primarily received in this, this testing and this challenging of our faith in the storms of life where we're confronted with our unbelief, where Jesus graciously and lovingly teaches us to trust him more. And the next storm that he would teach us to trust him more. And the next storm that he would teach us to trust him more. The fearful reality is Jesus is the sovereign Lord who uses the storms of life as a tool in his hand. And we should stand in awe of him. But this brings to a glorious reality that Jesus cares for us so much that he brings storms into our lives to sanctify us for heaven. This is the truth of the text. The trip that Renee and I took on the Sea of Galilee and the singing of he's got the whole world in his hands just reminds us today. Jesus does have it all in his hands. And while we would never plan for a storm, he does. He knows exactly what we need to deal with our unbelief and to bring us to the place of belief. And as odd as it may sound, these inevitable storms, remember I said we're either anticipating a storm in the future, in a storm now, or looking behind us having just emerged for a storm. I got that from Dr. John Hanna, who preached here at Covenant back many years ago. At the time he was suffering from cancer, so he knew what he was talking about. The reality of these storms, the inevitability of these storms, we need to have the perspective that they are tools in the hands of Jesus, to deal with our unbelief and bring us to the place of greater faith, to trust him more and more.
and to have the perspective of Jesus sanctifying us so that we would be able to, to say, even though I would never plan for a storm, yet being in the hands of Jesus, this storm being in the hands of Jesus, this is a blessed place for me to be where I'm being taught to trust Jesus cares for us that much to sovereignly bring storms into our lives, to sovereignly use storms, that we would trust him more and more. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this, this account on the Sea of Galilee. We acknowledge, Father, parts of it are somewhat bewildering to us because we know all too well the inevitability of storms and we don't like them, we would never plan for them. But Father, show us and enable us to actually see that being in your hands is a blessed place even with a storm being in the other. plan and purpose in large measure is that we would learn to trust you more. So teach us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you take your word?